0: Hi there and welcome to another OSLA podcast from the 24th annual ANZIC CTG meeting held in the beautiful town of Noosa Heads. My guest on the podcast today is Emma Ridley, Manager of the ICU Nutrition Program at the Monash University ANZIC Research Centre. She joins me today to chat about her survey of nutritional practices in Australasian ICUs, known as the Nutrient Study, presented here at the conference. Emma, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Emma what was the um, the lead up to this study? What were the objectives and why did you uh, why did you perform it
1: well we're actually doing some interventional studies some RCTs at the moment and I realised through that process that we had put the cart before the horse in a couple of areas. So I thought, hang on a minute, we don't really understand totally about what's happening in practice and we probably should go back and have a good look about what's happening in practice before we go too far. Um, And we unfortunately um, had a process that doesn't exist anymore where we we were a lot of us were involved in an international audit practice process of nutrition but that was stopped um, several years ago now and so it was a big gap we haven't been able to do that on a large scale and I think some sites individually had been auditing their nutrition practice, but it had really dropped off in terms of, I guess, a dedicated audit of nutrition practice. And I was also conscious that smaller sites may not have the resources to do this on their own. Um, And so, we really thought, okay, there's an opportunity here for us to understand our practice, to provide some data back to sites to use their own quality improvement processes and understand their nutrition care processes, but also then to feed into our research ideas so that they are relevant to issues that are happening in practice. So, that's really how it all came about and I'm very grateful to the 44 sites that managed to get it done in amongst COVID, which is really incredible, really great work.
0: Emma, which patients were you specifically looking at?
1: We purposely kept it broad. So um, when we're thinking about who we're going to include, uh, we didn't want to make it a study just for ventilated patients, for example, or make it a study, you know, that really then makes it a study for big metropolitan ICUs in many aspects. And we wanted to be sure that we were being broad and getting a snapshot of really what is happening out there for nutrition care and getting a snapshot of who who people are really seeing in their ICUs, not just in the big hospitals. So um, that made it different to other. Work that's been done before because a lot of work is focused on ventilated patients but for us we felt that there was probably a need to understand more about what's happening in the non-ventilated patients as well so we included patients that were both in ICU and HDU um, and who had been admitted after midnight on the day of our screening and remained in ICU for more than 48 hours um, and not for a sort of a bed block reason, obviously for um, an actual illness reason. So we weren't wanting people that just came for a little uh, short stint, but we were also trying to be quite broad in that it wasn't just mechanically ventilated patients.
0: So how did you go about it? What sort of information were you collecting and how was that collected?
1: We, it's an observational study. So a prospective observational study, we screened over seven days. Um, and so basically had a start date. We set everyone screen on our inclusion criteria and enter as many patients as you can in that period. Um, the bigger sites sort of included around 20 patients and some of the small sites um, between five to 10. Um, and we knew that would probably be the case because we've done a little bit of screening um, on our data to look at that. Um, We linked with the APD database. So um, we wanted to make it as streamlined as possible. Um, That's pretty hard with nutrition. Sometimes the data is hard to collect, but we tried to streamline it. And I think we've learned a lot. We could do better, but we did try and streamline it. So we linked demographics with APD, which worked quite nicely and reduced the data burden um, on many of the sites. And we also linked some service provision data with ANZICS Core. And then we got extra um, service provision on dietetics levels of service and things from the actual hospitals. Um, And then we did data collection, so daily in ICU up until day seven and then weekly after that depending on um, regardless of where the patient was. So we included the ward this time and we had a reduced data collection um, form for the ward, but that also makes it quite novel because a lot of people have not investigated this period and it's something we're quite interested in as a research group.
0: Emma, you mentioned that you focused on those first seven days. Why was there such focus on that initial period?
1: For the first seven days, I I guess we focused on that because that's when we see that a lot of the issues with nutrition happen um, and it's also a period where patients are starting nutrition and there's often barriers and things like that. So we focused on that period um, for that reason. But then we did open it up, as I said, to collect data after that. Um, ideally, we would have loved daily data until the end of our study period, but that's just not feasible or possible and no one would have done our study, so we just couldn't do that. So we compromised on um, a reduced version that would still give us information, but it's just a snapshot
0: essentially. I'm curious to know how many patients are assessed by dietitians and what the nutritional goals were that you identified in the, the study.
1: Yeah, so that was quite interesting about half of our patients had a nutrition assessment and so when we looked at the group that was included that kind of you know seemed appropriate the length of stay wasn't too long in our group of patients it was around four days as a median so that would sort of make sense not everyone would have needed to see a dietitian. Um, but what was quite interesting was when we broke down the data into those that were eating orally versus those that had artificial nutrition. Um, many more patients had a nutrition assessment if they were receiving artificial nutrition. That again makes sense because often the dietitians are involved in those patients. But what's interesting is that about 30%. Um, of those who had oral nutrition had an assessment, but they actually did very poorly in terms of their nutrition adequacy. So I think there is room for us to do better in terms of caring for those patients. And I know anecdotally, um, they're not often prioritised. These patients that eat orally for, you know, they often don't stay very long, which is okay if they don't stay long and then they leave the hospital. But if they don't stay very long and then they sit on the ward for a long time and they're still not eating, that's potentially a problem. And I think it's a group that we've really missed so far. So that data is really interesting to me. I think there's a gap that... Um, we're missing these patients that are just eating for lots of reasons. I think it's resources as well, and perhaps we haven't looked and we haven't known some of the issues, so we'll be starting to unpack that a bit more.
0: So you mentioned there that you've explored some of the um, patients who are leaving the ICU. What did you find and how does that compare to their time in ICU?
1: So, on the ward, patients did better from an adequacy point of view, which kind of makes sense. They're getting better and they're probably eating and drinking a little bit more. But interestingly, um, the intake from oral nutrition alone for energy and protein was almost identical for those that had eaten the whole way through their admission and those that had artificial nutrition support. But the adequacy overall was much higher in those that had had artificial nutrition support. So, again, it does um, confirm that if you continue artificial nutrition support in some aspect, if the patient looks like they need it or are going to have a longer stay or unable to eat adequately, you are going to be able to provide extra nutrition. And so that's important because some patients are going to need that extra support, some people won't. Um, But I think it's important to know that that's the strategy that's going to work if it's a patient that that's important for.
0: So looking again at the results, what what do you learn from this? What have you uh, discovered about nutrition and how it's delivered in Australasia and ICUs?
1: I think um, generally we do a pretty good job overall within the resources that we have. Um, Look, adequacy could be better in some aspects, but at the same time, I'm very conscious. We don't have a lot of data to tell us exactly what we should be aiming for. Um, And particularly in that early period, the data that we do have actually tells us that just standard care is fine. So I think what we're doing, we have a, a good and acceptable level of standard care. Um, but I do think there's gaps that we haven't investigated yet and there's room for movement in that in terms of our patients that eat orally. I think now it's time to actually look at specific patient groups. So the work that we've done previously is in um, you know, all comers, but probably people respond differently depending on um, their underlying illness and, and also their underlying in personal characteristics like malnutrition or body composition things like that and that hasn't probably been explored as much so I think it's time that we start to do that um, hopefully we're going to be able to use this data to really understand nutrition service I think that's really interesting we have really no data about that dietitians have no standards of care we have no sort of I guess, guidance around what an effective nutrition care process is, when we should be really um, focusing our attention. And so we're really hoping with the data, we can start to understand some of that too, because that's going to inform healthcare for the future. And that's really what we want to understand and move towards. You know, it doesn't matter if you're providing a service, if it's not effective, then what is the point? We need to be doing something that's right for our patients.
0: Emma, you mentioned earlier that uh, data had previously been kept on nutrition practices and it's been a little while since that's happened. What have we, uh, has there been any change over time in, in these nutrition practices and how do you look back at the data that has been collected previously?
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, we did a comparison study a few years ago using the data that was come from the International Nutrition Survey in Canada, which is the study I previously referred to. Um, and things haven't really changed over time. And I think looking at our data, it hasn't changed that much. Um, I think Australia and New Zealand usually do better in terms of adequacy compared to other um, regions. And so, that's that's good. It's not hugely different, but it's slightly better. Um, and so, there's that, but it hasn't really changed a lot. And I think that's probably because the evidence hasn't told us that we really need to change yet. And so, why would you be putting resources into that um, there's also the issue of translation of research, which you know often doesn't get translated. So there's that old issue as well. So um, it hasn't changed a lot in terms of what we know, particularly for ventilated patients. But I do think there, there is a, a significantly increasing number of people that are really starting to think about the post-ICU period, patients that eat um, alone and also particular patient groups. So I think in the next sort of 10 years or so with nutrition research, you'll see that these sorts of things are really going to be coming to the forefront of our minds, I think.
0: Are there any other take-home messages that you took from this data?
1: Uh, just that Australians are really hard workers and even in a pandemic, it's amazing what they can get done. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, thank you. We had 44 sites contribute and that was um, amazing. And we've got uh, we've got about five publications already planned, so I'm just really excited to look at the data in different ways and make sure that we can get as much out of it as we can.
0: Well done on getting this uh, information into the hands of Intensivists everywhere and congratulations. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. You can hear other great interviews from the ANZIC CTG conference here in Noosa, as well as hundreds of modules, podcasts, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for MyOSLA wherever you get your apps or visit oslacommunity.com.